welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Home Efficiency. Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community? Do it for a living? Make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Check out. Hi, welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Bernard. Um, I have with me today, Mike Casey and Nat Shub of TigerCom, a clean economy, uh, social license and communications company out of the States. Welcome, Mike and Nat. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Good to be here. So the, the, com- the conversation today is about micromobility, um, you know, and for, for the sake of the, the audience in Clean Technica, micromobility can mean a lot of things. Um, the, clean, the emerging Clean Technica definition is that it's all small electric personal vehicles. Uh, so anything from personally owned electric bikes, scooters, solo wheels, uh, skateboard, electric skateboards, um, into all the share devices, the electric share devices that are now occurring, uh, such as electric scooters like Lime and Bird, um, and on into stuff that I talked with Anthony Townsend about earlier this year, the emerging ca- uh, class of small autonomous electric delivery vehicles, which are starting to emerge. Um, however, for today, what we're focused on are shared micromobility solutions, because TigerCom has done some really interesting work in that space over the past year. Um, Mike and Nat, why don't don't we start by just saying, you know, who you guys are and what TigerCom is, and, you know, then we'll segue into the the, the more the micromobility stuff. Mike, how about you? Take it away. Tell tell us about yourself. Sure. Nat and I are part of a firm called TigerCom, which is a marketing communications and public affairs firm. We are expressly set up to help clean economy companies succeed with customers and regulators and investors. Nat and I are also both customers of micromobility. I've both rented electric scooters and bikes, and I own a last mile device called a one wheel, and I use it to get to work. And Nat and I I would say roughly a year and a half ago, began to compare notes. And we both felt from a personal standpoint, but also from, I'll say, a climate hawk standpoint, that micromobility was really, really important as part of how this country that we live in is going to tackle global climate disruption. And we really want the micromobility space to succeed, not only because we're fans of it and we're customers of it, but because we see it as a critical part of 
cutting the amount of pollution that this country and Canada and other places around the world put out. And so we launched this this um, look, and it is the first time anybody's looked in depth at the public affairs programs. Really, I'll say the observable parts of the public affairs programs of the micromobility companies who have all told us that they don't have a problem getting people to get on the scooters or on the bikes. The challenge is the government permission to provide the service in any given city. That's their main growth constraint. And so we directed our efforts at trying to analyze how are these companies doing getting and maintaining this license to operate. And the lens that we brought to this question was informed by the experiences that we've had over the last decade, decade and a half, of seeing other clean economy sectors that are locally regulated. How did they do in investing and controlling their own fate? And what was the result? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting place because, you know, the, um, when you and I have spoken about this before, and, you know, for Clean Technica, they'll, they'll recognize Mike's name and Tigercom's name uh, from, you know, various things I've published in the past. Mike and I have known each other for a couple of years now. Um, but, you know, the way that you and others that I know in the space have described it, you know, there, there might be five council members who have to vote on something. And um, a big part of public affairs is getting three of them to vote yes. Um, and. You know, I think it was fascinating reading through the um, the study that you guys put together. Now, there's there's various pieces I'd like to pull out of that, but l- let's a little bit more just briefly, Mike. I mean, I, I know that you've kind of got this weird social graph, like the new Secretary of Energy for the United States is someone you know well. Yes. Um, and so, you know, give us, you know, tell tell the audience members a little bit about your background. Um, helping out in Washington and other places like that, because I think that's relevant. Yeah, I've, I've been at this personally for 35 years. The first third of that was spent helping people get into office, to stay in office, or to help others remove somebody from office. And that experience really formed, I think, part of our paradigm that we viewed these public affairs programs through. As we said in the analysis, We've never met a founder who set up to their company to please politicians. It's just not what you go into business to do. And yet, if you are in possession of a business plan that will incur significant exposure to the decisions of local elected officials, you have to build into your business plan from the start a significant amount of attention and money and resources to devote to something that you really don't want to spend your time doing. So it's an understandable and very common tension. And yet neglecting that part of your success can lead to very painful outcomes. Yeah, we'll get back, get, get into that a little bit more um, pretty quickly. But Nat, um, just quick, uh, tell us about yourself. I mean, uh, you and I had a little bit of a chat, but let, let your audience, let my audience know um, who you are and, and what you're bringing to the table. Sure. So I've been working with, with Mike in some capacity for the last eight years. Um, and I, I work with him on, on some projects from time to time. Um, I also um, have been a management consultant for a few years. And then I went um, to get my master's degree in data science. Um, so right now my, my um, full-time job is 
Um, I work as a contractor for, for DOD, and uh, we do anomaly detection um, in the cybersecurity world. Um, so my my day-to-day job involves a lot of data and, and munging that data and crunching that data and then building predictive uh, models and, and machine learning uh, related uh, applications off of that data. And so there's a lot of opportunity here um, and an overlap between these micro-mobility companies because these guys are also data native and, and, and tech related companies, um, obviously. Um, excellent. Thank you so much. So, you know, one of the things I think that I, I found, you, you had a couple of things you talked about in the report um, that I, I'd like to kind of lean on a little bit. So, you know, the micro mobility drag coefficient was a, a lovely turn of phrase, you know, polysyllabic and yet easy to remember. Um, and it just kind of falls off your tongue, micro mobility drag coefficient. It sounds so cool. Uh, what is that? And why is that important? That's our conceptual distillation of the main constraint on growth as explained to us by people at these companies. They don't have a problem getting people to get on the vehicles. The vehicles are fun. They're all over the place. And it's, a, it's almost a social thing to do. The constraint is the fact that cities have been built and developed for car travel and a little bit of sidewalk traffic. And our challenge is now we have helmetless riders plus distracted car drivers plus a lack of dedicated space to keep the two separate. And the outcome is invariably going to be an increase in the amount of very serious accidents where helmetless riders are injured or killed. And we've seen a number that says that pre-pandemic, 20% of TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, coming into American hospital emergency rooms were from accidents involving scooters. So yes, as the scooters get more popular, the volume of accidents, sheer volume is going to go up. And one can focus on the, the rate percentage increase in those accidents. But I think to an elected official, we want to step back and say, what drives an elected official? And we know from a decade plus in politics and then another couple of decades working around politics, politics is a business that runs on fear first, respect second, and affection third. And we've seen other clean economy sectors make the mistake of inverting those. When we first got into solar, we heard over and over again, we're solar energy, everybody loves us. Well, that's not really the point. The question is, can you address the fear that runs politics at, at even the micro level? So the message that an elected official who's weighing how much of a micromobility cap to impose or is considering a ban or restriction on people's right to ride micromobility vehicles, their first concern is, am I going to get into political jeopardy because we have an increase in attention getting really bad accidents that involve cars and helmetless riders? And the numbers almost don't matter. It's the perception that really drives their actions. You've got something you call the clean economy mistake path, um, which I think you've identified across spaces. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we, when we've looked at the experiences of other sectors that are exposed to 
local policy making. They may be, as the offshore wind industry is exposed at multiple levels of government, but if you are exposed to a local level of policymaker decisions, and it's really important to your business, we see common behaviors, common paths to very expensive or, or sometimes fatal mistakes that have been made across a number of sectors. And that includes rooftop solar for residents, um, for, for homes, PACE lending, which stands for Property Assessed Clean Energy. It's a way you can finance here in the States uh, energy efficiency and renewable energy improvements to your house. And you look at onshore wind companies that need to get a local community to give its permission to build and operate a wind farm. Those three sectors alone, and there are others, their path into trouble in a lot of anecdotal situations really when overlaid form this pattern of running into expensive troubles. And we try to capture that so newer sectors as micromobility is can learn from the older clean economy sectors that have already gone out, skinned their knees, um, banged up elbows because they had some hard falls. And there's no reason to go repeat those mistakes. In the analysis, we also note some pretty important differences that micromobility has with other sectors that form or the, the experiences of which form the clean economy mistake path. But nonetheless, the path is applicable. It's an interesting one. And certainly you and I, you and I have spoken about this in the past. I, I spend a lot of time as a, you know, let Nat know, trying to toil in the you know, global trenches of getting past the disinformation campaigns and the irrationality about wind energy. And I, I'm comparing and contrasting because my spouse and I just, you know, watched uh, a bunch of Parks and Rec, the TV show. Um, and, you know, all those municipal council things where they had people, the public come in and be incredibly irrational about, you know, subjects that are, uh, shouldn't be that irrational and shouldn't be that uh, emotional. But but I certainly saw that from a wind energy perspective and, and nobody expects it. Um, they just expect that, you know, we've got 70%, 80% approval for our industry. So that means we'll have high approval locally or our customers love us in the case of micromobility and scooters. So the cities will love us, but that's not the way it works. It's, is, is your fundamental insight. And, you know, it's, it's what they have to adapt for. Now you also had um, a really interesting observation that they were poorly organized and they were poorly differentiated in the regulators minds. Um, you know, basically the regulators just all lump all the companies together um, so talk about that a bit, um, the, the inability of the, co- the companies to collaborate effectively <clears throat> or differentiate themselves from the regulators' perspective. We can't speak to the level of private coordination between these companies. Only they know that. What we can observe from the outside, and Nat was able to document, is that the companies are underdistinguished in the minds of the people who will determine their fate. And as a result... They get lumped together, so local officials are viewing them not as companies that have different levels of potential to make their lives easier, but instead, they see them as, quote, the scooter companies, far more often than they seem to distinguish as Lime or Bird or Bolt. 
So this is both a problem because when one company has an incident, an accident, or it's getting a preponderance of scooters that are getting left on sidewalks in the way of pedestrians, et cetera, or it does, as it did in the early days of the sector, dump a bunch of scooters into a town which it has not engaged at all and have that town react very harshly and aggressively. Because the field is undistinguished, problems for one become the problems for all. The good news is that this presents an opportunity for one company to seize the initiative to set the bar on high-value partnership with local officials. And since we released the analysis, we're seeing signs that companies are working to distinguish themselves through innovative programs, et cetera. And I will also say that during the process of putting this analysis together, and this was about, it was at least 12 months, I think closer to 18, the companies were making advances as we analyzed them. So a challenge with this analysis is it was dated from the second that we rolled it out. And yet I think the premises hold. Yeah, I mean, it, um, there was just the announce about, announcement about SPIN, um, you know, in doing machine learning and vi- with some of their visual and other sensors uh, for to detect when scooters were actually being ridden on sidewalks. And, uh, you know, they're kind of in a stage one model where they're at least detecting and beeping, but they're actually going to start trying to build in speed limiting. Um, I certainly know from the, uh, you know, observing the bike share models, especially in China, but also down in, you know, it's mirroring the, the um, dockless bike sharing problems where people would just abandon the bikes anywhere and they'd clutter up spaces. Geofencing had to be enabled in order to prevent people from just dropping the bikes off in front of stairs and blocking sidewalks. And the scooter stuff is the same thing. Uh, at least we aren't seeing uh, massive fields of rock, rusting scooters um, in the outskirts of the, uh, um, of the cities as exist in China, for example, with bikes. Um, we, we don't have quite the same weird economy here where everybody is trying to own the entire market and as such flooded entire cities and you know it's not quite as cutthroat in north america as it was in china on that stuff yeah but um i I do want to poke a bit at the data side of it um you know um as you may or may not know i published a 150 page um case set of report on case studies of clean tech and machine learning from around the world um and i've done i'm working on a series on um finding ways to bridge the gaps for the patchwork of regulations um, by creating a single data structure and amalgamating that and doing some adventures in municipal data science. I know Nat and I started a bit of a conversation. So I want to poke a bit at the data side for a minute with Nat. So Nat, um, how did you acquire the data? How did you manipulate the data? And what were your observations um, from doing the, the data side of it? I know you said it was a lot of counting, but... Um, it's interesting where we got to with that. So let's tell that story a little bit and, and pull up that thread a bit. We spent a while um, digging around on um, the, the, the main social media platforms to see what these companies are saying, both to the public and to the governing bodies and politicians that are responsible for allowing them to exist in, in a given city. Um, and so the, the data set that I, I built was was just a, a result of counting and and comparing posts um, and, and just digging into what what these company, companies are actually saying. And what we found was that uh, most of these companies, by and large, you know, the, the high level um, 
takeaway is that they they don't do a terribly effective job at, at actually addressing the people and politicians that need to that they need to speak to and need to be to, to deliver a compelling message to. And they also have a missed opportunity where they're not doing a great job of engaging their riders to be advocates on their behalf. Um, so there's a, a several missed opportunities with their with their engagement online of the public. And we also um, think that a lot of the, the product marketing that they do do on social media um, could be in and of itself could could have could be better directed at a, at a, at a, at a specific target audience. And it, it seems to not be the big takeaway, I think, from Nat's research is that what the companies say is their main growth constraint is a minority focus in their digital stream. And that's important to note because these are companies that primarily communicate to their riders through digital streams on smartphones. So it's a, by and large, the younger customer base that is very acclimatized to digital communications and interact with the world through smartphones. And they don't have any problem putting people on the devices or on, on the, on the scooters and bikes. And yet most of the digital footprint is centered around getting people to do that, which they don't have a problem getting people to do. So there's an opportunity here to course correct, to direct the digital stream over to alleviating the growth constraint, which is now all the more important as cities begin thinking about how they want to reopen up, how do they want to retain residents who have all undergone a little bit of a gut check courtesy of the pandemic about, do I want to live in the city or do I want to move out? Yeah, I'll pull that apart in a couple of ways, just because I, what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing you say um, from your analysis is, and from your experience, the companies are engaging with their customers who are delighted and happy to use their solution, but they're not engaging well with all the people that their customers are pissing off by leaving the scooters in the sidewalk. And those people are the ones who are going to talk to city council and to regulators. So it's the people that are getting annoyed who are the loud voices the city, the city regulators and council people are hearing, not the happy users. Correct. Yeah, that's, that's 100% it, correct. Yeah, it's part of it is, you know, uh, in my experience in wind energy, um, the vast majority of people are, are happy with something, don't get up and do anything about that. But the people who are annoyed about something, oh boy, did they make themselves heard. Um, and, and it's interesting as well, because one of the observations uh, I published something a while ago was the challenge of patchwork regulations across municipalities hindering mm. the speed of transformation we need. Uh, fundamentally, I'll, I'll just take the example of the lower mainland of British Columbia, where I live. I mean, I'm in downtown Vancouver, BC, and everybody thinks of Vancouver as an international city. And it's a cool place. It's not not the one near Portland that's really not that, all that great, uh, said he, teasing his acquaintances in Vancouver and uh, in, in Washington State. But Vancouver is actually Metro Vancouver. There's 2.6 million people in the urban area, but that's across 23 different cities, um, ridings, and First Nations territories. So there's 23 different sub-municipal organiza municipal organizations that actually have mayors and councils and regulations and zoning, and then a regional body which tries to bridge some of the gaps. Um, you know, this is non-trivial. This is actually the reality of a lot of urban areas is that they are not 
single municipal areas. There are multiple municipal areas that are just seamlessly merged into one another and they haven't amalgamated. Um, you know, nobody has, they haven't amalgamated and the, they, they're running under regional councils. And so what you end up with is enormous numbers of city councillors and regulators and people of different regulatory structures who have to be communicated with, and it's a significant degree of variance. So the observation I would make is it's very difficult outside the biggest, most amalgamated cities for most companies like the scooter companies to get to the right people and have the ability to communicate with them on a retail level. So they have to do it more on a wholesale level, which I think is what your insight is. Their social media, their public presentations, their websites, their Instagrams have to have a strong focus on enabling regulators to get the right message about the value proposition for their urban areas. Um, you talk about that in the, in the report as well, because it's, you talked about the traumatic brain injury, but you didn't talk about all the benefits that cities get from the scooters. So, you know, exactly. And maybe, maybe let's talk about that because you know, the, the traumatic brain injuries is a little bit hard, hard to parse and the 20% is very sticky. So let's talk about what, what are all the things that, cities get from these scooters programs? This is an excellent question. And there are a number of benefits. The first and foremost is it makes living in the cities easier and more fun. These devices are fun to ride on. That's why they've had, that's why Bird and Lime exploded before the pandemic up to $2 billion valuation for both of them. These are very rapid ascents up in the valuation ladder. And of course, there's smart management and great concepts, et cetera. So that's not to take away anything from the company and their leadership because they've done really good work. But the point is their concept is a winning one for cities. And your question is why it's, it makes living in cities more fun and convenient. You're cutting down the amount of air pollution. You are reducing traffic, car traffic, because people are not taking Ubers and Lyfts for 10 blocks. They're riding a scooter. And there's a long-term invitation to urban officials here to rethink city living. How can we make the cities more walkable and community-oriented and less car-dependent with all the challenges that come with car dependency and car centric thinking. Absolutely. I mean, I'm just going to pull a a few threads here because this is, you know, um, urban transportation and transit is is something that I pay a lot of attention to. So out of the United, uh, out of Vancouver, where I'm sitting again, they did a study a few years ago about biking and walking versus busing and driving. And they said, what's the cost to the individual and what's the cost to society? Um, and what they found is that, you know, biking might cost you $3.70 per for a five-kilometer commute, um, but it actually gets $0.75 cents of value for the, the city. So the city is actually making money effectively by avoiding um, congestion, avoiding upgrades, avoiding a bunch of other stuff. Um, and so the, the micro-mobility thing fits exactly into that. It reduces road congestion. It reduces CO2 emissions. It reduces particulate and nitrous oxide and sulfur dioxide emissions inside the city from uh, engine exhaust. Um, it reduces the strain on growth for transit if transit exists at all. Um, 
And, you know, one of the things you haven't talked about, urban noise is an issue and scooters are quiet. Yes, 100%. So that's kind of one thread. There's just all these value propositions. And and my observation about these, you know, I I did an analysis of share bike systems and why they're so difficult for them to get into a lot of cities. The the problem that I would articulate is that all of those different benefits, um, actually, I'm going to talk about a couple more benefits and I'll come back to why the it's difficult to get cities engaged with these benefits, in my, my opinion. So I'm going to talk about a, a little bit about Richard Florida. Um, so you know who Richard Florida is? Um, so Richard Florida is, um, if you're an, an urban development nerd like me, Richard Florida is up there with Jane Jacobs. Um, he's an urban theorist. He's now based out of the, the Rotten School of Business in uh, Toronto, uh, but he's an American. Um, and his fundamental, uh, one of his fundamental insights about the growth of cities as the massive sources of of national GDP that they are now, you know, because most GDP comes from urban areas now, um, was the development of what he called the creative class. The creative class was information workers, um, artists, thinkers, data scientists like Nat, um, communicators like you, people who um, were the true growers of the modern economy. And, you know, he talks about the downsides of that as well. And, you know, certainly that's been playing out in the United States um, over the electoral cycles of the past couple of major electoral cycles. But for urban areas, attracting and supporting the creative class, creating a really beneficial environment for them to live and grow in, is one of his fundamental observations about how cities can maximize their growth and maximize their wealth. Um, Bike share is a strong attractor for people to cities. And now scooter share and other last mile micromobility devices is a strong attractor for people to cities. It's just fun to your point. They're fun. It's fun. It's a great way to do that last, you know, five blocks. Um, It's convenient. It's cheap. And people want to live in places where those attributes exist. They don't want to live in places where you can't do those things. And so these are other benefits. But as we think about that, that turns into a tourism benefit, that turns into an urban uh, economic development plan benefit, that turns into a clean air benefit, it turns into a transit benefit. But those are typically all different departments and different budget lines with different city organizations focused on them and often different uh, political groups focused on lobbying for them. And so that diffusion of the value proposition is hard to overcome because you have to align different stakeholders in the city in order to create that impetus and to help help them see the value. Whereas it's very easy for someone from Parks and Rec, you know, back to Parks and Rec, to say, well, these things are cluttering up our stuff and our, our users are complaining, so get rid of them. And it's just very loud. So how do you help with that? How do you help with finding all the stakeholders that get value from a micromobility thing in a city? I think what you're talking about, Mike, is very important. You're noting that the problems are pointed, the benefits are diffuse. That doesn't mean they're not real, but they're diffuse and their, their benefits come over time and are cumulative. So 
it's a little bit of a mismatch between the source of the concern and the promise of the benefit. You've asked an important question is what, what should be done? And this points to an important part of the analysis where we talk about micromobility's unique set of assets relative to other clean economy sectors that are exposed to local policymaking and regulation. I'm going to assert, I think Nat will concur that we we think micromobility has a the largest number of customers and customer experiences from which data can be gathered. And why is that? Because micromobility patronage is the among the least committal acts you can make in the clean economy. If you're going to install solar panels on your roof, that's a significant expense and you take time and you shop and you get a number of bids. If you're going to take a PACE loan out, also something you think about. Certainly having a wind farm be located on your land if you live in a rural area, is a very committal step. And I even go so far as to say that green travel in the form of hair, um, home sharing, that is a more committal thing because you're looking at different places. Scooters are the closest thing the clean economy has to an impulse purchase. And it makes for a low committal experience, but the ridership, the number, sheer number of rides adds up extremely quickly. So the trick then is how can we get people who are taking almost in it, making it almost really akin to an impulse purchase and converting their immediate few minutes after the ride into an invitation to take a step that supports their right to ride. And the data pool is vast enough that the most important thing we think that the companies can do is begin segmenting the data and using it to experiment with identifying the riders who are the most committed to the idea of last mile rental transit and sticking up for it. And then constructing a ladder of engagement from the acts that take the least amount of time can be executed on a smartphone. Perhaps as you're walking away from the scooter, you just parked all the way up to a much more committal act of showing up to an event, signing an op-ed, appearing in a video testimony or something like that. There's a lot of steps that we can ask people to take and not all will take all. Um, Some will take a few and figuring out who's willing to do what is the next frontier, I think, in micromobility advocacy. Yeah, interesting. I, I, I see two extension points Um, because I'm nerdy and I see data extension points. Um, The first is, um, if you know that your riders are riding and they're out and moving, and there's a council meeting where there's a discussion of that stuff, what about, you know, just saying, hey, if you're interested, riding to this council meeting is free. Beautiful. Um, Right? Just nice, simple. You're already moving. Hey, they're actually having a hearing on exactly what you're doing right now. And if you want to go there, it's free. That would be kind of cool. Uh, The second one is the big question mark for me is how do you make it really interesting to give interesting data to cities? Now, Nat and I started talking about this. Let's talk a little bit about municipal open data. Nat, you you had some observations about that and, you know, 
lean into those a little bit, and then I'll probably end up expanding a bit, and we can think about what might what what that might imply. Sure. When it comes to moving people efficiently through a city, um, that, that's a big data and, and and optimization problem, and it's very expensive to make mistakes. It's very expensive to make changes for cities, especially if they're trying to accommodate people in in, in cars or make significant changes to mass transit. Um, but there's a, a ton of data out there that these scooter companies would be happy to provide. And, and in many situations, they are already providing to cities to show where people are at, people's actual uh, movement patterns. And there are other, besides the scooter companies, there are a lot of other different um, open source or, or publicly available um, or privately available if cities ask nicely sources of data to, to understand how people move. And um, all of this can be harnessed to improve the infrastructure that, um, that cities have in order to make moving through a city safer, more enjoyable, more efficient, faster, all the things that are big sticking points to urban life for some people. So talk about that. Well, I think there was one thing that I was interested in there that one of the things I wanted to poke at a bit was what data are they providing and to whom in the city and what va- for what value proposition? Do you have a good example of a, a company who's doing really well at that and what the data is being, what data they're sharing? Sure. So some companies and some cities are much better about this than others, but I believe that um, Los Angeles is working with, um, has worked with several of the scooter companies in the past to try to help them optimize the, the last mile problem around their, their, their mass transit systems. Obviously, LA is, is known for being sprawling and their transit only gets you so far if you're trying to go door to door. To door. Um, so there's, there's a lot of ways that um, the scooter companies can, can be a good partner for the city um, and to, to, to make their, their mass transit system more, more viable. Um, and they're also, um, I, I think LA also was working with um, some of the super companies to, to look at the um, common roads that people use um, as the first candidates for infrastructure improvements, whether it's bike lanes or, 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 or other dedicated scooter and bike related infrastructure. Um, that again, will, can save lives and, and make city living a lot more enjoyable and, and safe and efficient. Yeah, because, you know, bike paths are, um, I will actually say, you know, I've talked about iterative urban planning and development, and bike paths are a clear place. You know, it's like if you paint a line on the side of a road and say that's a protected bike area and put a labels on it, it gets you one step. And if it gets a little more use, then it's easy to put up a simple, you know, plastic pole barrier as, you know, Alberta, as Calgary, Alberta did very quickly one summer to slightly protect it. And then later on to turn that into a complete street. Complete street, urban planning terms, is a street with, um, you know, dedicated, um, with trees, with wider sidewalks for pedestrians, with a dedicated bike and small vehicle, you know, small electric vehicle lane, uh, then a row of parking, then the moving cars. Um, you know, and so you, and you've got room for potentially for a buses as well. The, the point there is, that, you know, you can incrementally develop towards that. And this data about where people actually use it is good. Um, the LA is an interesting example as well, because um, the data from Uber and Lyft in uh, the Southern, in the California cities is they've actually caused a decline in bus ridership, um, especially around places where anybody had to do a transfer between two buses. Um, and, and I strongly see a value proposition for people getting on a bus, getting to the last mile, taking a, a scooter that last little bit. 
um, to, you know, increase transit use. Um, so, you know, it's actually Uber and Lyft, at least so far, have been negative from an environmental and congestion perspective on the streets of San Francisco and, and L.A. So the potential there for data sharing is useful. The potential there for improving transit is useful. Um, I, you know, I just think congestion as well. And, you know, the nice thing about the, the devices, they are, they are geotagged as they move through space. Um, you, you, you know, they, they know exactly where they are at all times and all those trips are moderated and the exact duration of those trips is moderated. So they know the velocity through space that is amenable to those devices. So there's some, probably some sophisticated work that could be done around traffic congestion and unexpected street problems as well. Um, but yeah, secondary stuff, uh, to the point though, um, LA is a huge city with a big budget and it can afford to do work around do data work. But you know, as you get into the smaller municipalities or the patchwork municipalities like the lower mainland, uh, in municipal budgets and sophisticated resources um, in larger departments diminish substantially. Um, and so that's another challenge to overcome is the, the scooter companies can do a lot of good for a city like LA. But as they get into these other cities where the challenges of budget and expertise um, diminish, it gets there. I, I, I spent time in um, open data for municipalities in the past, and everybody wants to do it, but there's a lot of cities that have no money to do it. So That's a good of, point, although, it, again, it depends on the size of the city and their appetite to, to be ambitious in the space. But if you compare the amount of of money it would cost to do a little bit of, of work with analytics to try to optimize their their um, micro mobility or, or scooter or bike friendly infrastructure relative to the amount of money that they spend on roads and, and highways and any other sort of car related infrastructure, um, it's it's a drop in the bucket. So yeah. it, you're right; it's a lot easier for a city like LA to justify it. But um, ignoring it is penny wise and pound foolish, even for much smaller cities. Um, so let's pivot a bit. Um, you, Mike, you mentioned this. I certainly mentioned this. I was um, uh, did a keynote um, in the e-bike futures conference uh, out of Europe. It's kind of a global electric bike conference earlier this year, uh, and I also ended up on a panel with uh, Scott Montgomery of you know formerly of Canon and other uh, major bike companies, um, and Don De Constanza, the founder um, and CEO of Pedego Bikes. You know, uh, they're the fun, friendly bikes, and they're they're for a very different demographic. When Don and I were talking about them, his demographic are not scooter riders per se. There, there's an overlap there, but they're boomers. They're you know people who are retired. They're people who live in uh, not necessarily as urban areas. They're people who want to maintain activity despite having bad knees from stuff they stupid stuff they did in their youth. Where scooter riders, to your point, are typically millennials and younger. Um, but the, the thread I wanted to pull on was the COVID impact. Electric bikes have been flying off the shelves. Certainly in Vancouver, I see an awful lot more scooters than I did a year ago. So I assume they've been flying off the shelves as well without having looked at the numbers. But you talked about the impact upon the micromobility share companies. You want to pull at that and what you think has happened and what you've observed has happened is also what you think is going to occur in the, in the um, regrowth now that vaccines are starting to be distributed? Yeah, in our 
conversations with executives at the companies before and after the analysis was completed, they were uniform in feeling an urgent need to restart growth because as many of your listeners will remember, when the pandemic first rolled into North America, there was a lot of concern about surface transmission. We now know that's the least problematic of three ways you can get this. And that plummeted the number of people getting on these vehicles because who wants to touch handlebars that in the middle of a pandemic that 20 people have just touched? We are seeing signs that ridership is rebounding before the vaccines. And I think that that will continue. The companies are going to be in a much better position to tell you their recovery rates than we are. But I think the real opportunity with the pandemic is the rethink that city officials are now faced with. How do you retain density? Because a lot of people have got the idea now that they don't have to live in an urban corridor. And how do you make a city more livable over the long run? And this one founder of a company said, you know, the pandemic, once it it lifts, will be a real opportunity. And this analysis is going to be all the more timely because of that. And I think he's right. Yes, certainly um, part of my background, weirdly enough, is that I helped build the most sophisticated uh, pandemic management, vaccine management, and communicable disease management solution in the world. Uh, it's used across Canada and the Middle East. It's managing COVID-19 right now for managing the data related to COVID-19. And it'll be managing a lot of the vaccine, vaccines and vaccination, a bunch of jurisdictions. So yeah, the um, it was a, a big concern initially for share bike devices and other devices, but what's called fomites, which is transmission through surfaces. And that turned out not to be something to worry about, especially for devices that were outside in the sunshine. Yeah. UV ray degrades the, um, the stuff. But the problem is, and as I think about this, the average person has no clue about this. <laughs> so how do you communicate that effectively to enough people that you, you know, that they don't have this weird thing and, you know, or, or how do, what's, what security theater do you do, do you do? I mean, they have helmet liners with the share bike system here, which fairly few people use, but maybe there's rubber glove dispensers associated with the scooters. Who knows? So let's talk a bit about, you know, COVID-19 and the, the reopening. Because what, what I've articulated in the past, did a little Instagram post on this about the clean air dividend in cities. Um, you know, as, as traffic diminished, um, the skies opened up. And this was vi- visible from pictures all over the world. Taj Mahal was actually nicely beautiful. Um, and there was the open streets dividend. There was diminished traffic, diminished traffic noise. Um, there were... Uh, parking areas turned into um, outdoor cafes and patios. Um, and so there's this real opportunity. And there's, a, I think to your point, it's a real opportunity for micro mobility firms to engage directly in keeping the city's air clean, keeping the city's streets open and vibrant and making cities great places. Um, how, how do you think they might best do that? The good news is that the micro mobility companies have more data from more customers and more infrastructure access to those customers through smartphones than any other clean economy sector we can think of. 
the challenge right now is that elected officials are not hearing from riders at nearly the scale they're hearing about the complaining, those who complain about riders. So to close the gap, to express the benefits and to provide assurance to elected officials, the opportunity here is to engage riders to speak up for the upsides to the city, to their experience as city residents that micromobility affords them. And the good news is that's entirely unclaimed space right now for the companies. That's good. I'm also thinking that this is a place where some data mining might find the ability to do a recovery, which includes, you know, return more car traffic and road traffic, but maintain some of the closed streets and some of the parking um, because of the micromobility diversion of people to non-individual passenger vehicle, you know, enclosed three, you know, two ton metal boxes, um, you know, might be able to provide that gap. Now, what do you think about that as a mechanism, as something they could be doing in terms of their analysis and projecting as a value proposition to cities? That's absolutely something that that some some do attempt to, um, to, to 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 sell to cities as part of their value proposition, um, and it's I think it's important right now to to to, to strike while the iron's hot, so to speak. Um, during the pandemic, you know, a lot a lot of things that have been happening slowly began changing quickly. Um, and people like the, the, as you mentioned, the, the lack of pollution for those few months in March, that's, that's, that's fresh in people's minds right now. And right now, a lot of um, the changes in, in, in space from, like, you know, converting parking spots to outdoor dining, that's, that's still in place. So now is, is a good time to, to cement some of those, those gains and, and, and push it forward. And another thing that um, I don't think you mentioned that um, I have found personally to be interesting is how many people have found an escape uh, from the pandemic and being in their homes um, in, in running and walking and, and recreational cycling and, and, and things of that nature. You know, bike shops around me are, are still almost completely sold out. And, and I had trouble buying a new pair of running shoes uh, a couple weeks ago because they, they just, they're just flying off the shelves. And that sort of enthusiasm for, for, for um, a, different, a different way of life to, to think about it at a high level from, from how we've been doing things in the past um, it's important to translate that into some sort of action to, to rethink how, how our cities work and, and how, how the future will look. Yeah. On that note, um, you know, one of the sections of the report, you talked about um, the potential for a micromobility coalition, um, basically an industry group to do advocacy on behalf of the micromobility uh, industry, the, the microshare thing. And you, you talked about NUMO and, you know, NUMO is a, a global um, uh, group, that's you know, very interesting, but it's not doing that micro advocacy and lobbying in the, in the same way. It's not focused on that. You know, Mike, maybe you want to talk about your concept for a micro mobility coalition and <clears throat> compare and contrast that to what NUMO is doing. Um, so you can say, you know, cause you, you've got some good stuff and maybe has there been any movement on that? So I think we are not in a position as outside observers to know what negotiations are happening between the companies to produce more effective coalitions. Nat did, I think, a very good look at comparing the current structures, which are admittedly all nascent in a very new sector. So it's not a knock on the sector that the 
cross-sector structures are still finding their way. This is to be expected. <clears throat> we do have a lot of confidence in our suggestion that the sector look at crafting programs of micro-activism. Lots of little rider actions taken that add up to meaningful impact and engagement with local officials. So there's a balance in what the local officials are hearing. If you have angry residents and we have a few local lobbyists for the micromobility companies contesting, you know, the, the, the angry majority is going to always win when in fact it's not a majority, it's a minority. And we just, I think it, it, an absolute prerequisite here to being effective is we've got to find ways that harness rider interest in keeping their right to ride these vehicles. Yeah, it, this strikes me as in terms of these micro actions. One of the things I think, you know, I talked about, there's a, you know, a discussion going on and, you know, it's free to get there. But what about, you know, establishing and, and maybe this exists and I'm just not aware of it. Um, hey, we're going to do a cleanup of this riverbank in the urban area and all rides to and from it uh, for that day are free, right? Just uh, um, something that which improves the urban fabric um, and the company engages its ridership for those types of actions. So it's a very positive, visible thing that they can uh, hang marketing off of and hang urban value off of. A hundred percent. And I, I believe that um, it was Lime, um, that um, was offering free rides to the polls in in, in, in November, um, I think nationally. Um, and in the past, they've done that across Europe as well. So that's something that they can, uh, their, their technological um, um, infrastructure allows them to do relatively easily. And it's a good way to get good press. Absolutely. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I, I know uh, this is actually one of my big observations about everything is um, everything I've thought of somebody else has already done. Um, <laughs> so we've got a, about nine minutes left. So I, I'd like to pivot to kind of the last topic and a half. Um, and one of the questions I'd like, you know, is this is going to become, this is the first in a series of podcasts around micro mobility. It's kind of a clean technica focus now. Um, so who do you think, are some of the thought leaders and influencers in the space from your perspective, Mike and Nat? Mike, Mike, it's a good question. I think we, we don't have a look inside the companies to see who is planning what next steps. There is anecdotal evidence that both bird and Lyme are beginning to forge their way to more distinguished public engagement programs. And that makes sense because they have the most resources to draw on. I do think that it would be interesting to do a series of interviews with the people who are running North American public affairs for the different companies and ask them this question. My sense is they would be in a better position to answer that question. I'm confident that we got this analysis right. We know that because people in three different companies basically said, you're spot on. In fact, that's those are the words that one senior exec at one company used. What I'm also 
cognizant of is that we're dated. We're all, we're already dated because you take a long time doing these things. It's a dynamic sector. Things are changing. There's a lot of movement. They're hiring very impressive people to come in and drive results. Results are going to happen. So they may be much farther along than it meets the eye because they've had time to work on it and the needs are definitely there. And we're not the only people who will come to these conclusions if faced with the same or even better data and fact sets. Yeah, makes sense. Um, yeah, certainly, um, you know, having you having had those conversations, uh, I'll, I'll lean on you to uh, make some introductions for me potentially and so sure. that we can get some of those people. I'm also seeing Robin Chase, who, you know, um, kick-started Numo as uh, somebody who's probably in this space. Um, you know, she's very focused on urban mobility. Um, one of the things I observe, though, is it, not though, this is the wrong word to use. I, I take the example of North American renewables uh, associations. Uh, the, you know, in, in Canada, it was Canwea and the Canadian Solar Organization. In the United States, there's American Wind Energy Association and an equivalent solar organization. And, and, and those were always obvious both natural allies, and it was always um, remarkable to me that they weren't actually one organization. And so now they both in the United States and Canada, they have merged into single national organizations for renewables, not separate ones. Um, from your perspective in the micromobility share space, who are the natural allies and which are the right extended groups to be part of, if you, could, if you, if you see one of those? Yeah, great question. I think that the micromobility sector lends itself much more readily to a sector association than solar and somewhat in wind. I, I have we have done a, a extensive amount of work in, for, and around both the Solar Energy Industry Association and what was the American Wind Energy Association. And we've also done a lot of work with the U.S. Green Building Council. So we know a good bit about how associations work and the dynamic tensions that are there. Solar, the first time we were representing the Solar Energy Industry Association, they were at least three to four uh, de facto rump groups that were organized around solar thermal power versus PV panels, large-scale solar versus residential installation, foreign manufacturers versus domestic manufacturers. There were tensions within those industries or those sectors that were there. And and for AWEA, the question has been how and to what extent do we incorporate offshore wind when our onshore wind companies have different relationships with the offshore wind sector? So these have been these have been differences that have to have been solved for for a number of years. I, as people who are strictly observing from the outside at this point, we, I can't tell you what the list of potential differences are in that sector, but given how readily commoditized the services have become, it's reasonable to suspect that association formation is much more obvious and much easier to do within this sector than it is within other sectors that have more under the hood diversity of interests than micromobility has. Yeah, so you can see bike share, classic bike share, docked and undocked. 
You could see the scooter shares. You could see, um, you know, uh, potentially Uber and Lyft and the ride share organizations. You could see the car right. share organizations like Evo up here and Car2Go in various places. You could see them potentially because they're all ur- very urban focused. Yes. They yeah. are. Their natural environment is not diverse. It is dense urban areas. And they have the same set of problems of street space, shared space, taking up private and public parking spaces, potentially, you know, diverting people from transit or supporting, a, um, you know, a lack of capital investment in transit. And so there's a, an interesting question there, but there are 800 pound gorillas in there, like Uber and Lyft have a lot more money than the rest of them combined. I'm pretty sure I might be wrong. I haven't done that. I haven't run the numbers. No, you're, I think you're, you're right. And I, it, you raise Uber and Lyft and those are very interesting companies to mention. Our analysis admittedly left out Lyft because it was not possible to separate their micromobility content from the rest of their content stream. It's not divided in an overt way, and it was hard to pull it out by us in order to take a look at it. And it could be that Uber and Lyft, as micromobility players, active or not, they may have competing interests, they, or they may see that they have competing interests, both within their companies and the, the way they approach it versus the pure play micromobility companies. I think that remains to be seen, but Lyft and Uber have a tremendous amount of public affairs experience already, much of it very hard won, and that experience should be leveraged to the fullest. Absolutely. Um, okay, we've got a, just a couple of minutes left. I, I figured it's time for some open last thoughts. We'll start with Nat, and then Mike, you get to say the closing words before I say <laughs> thank you and goodbye. So Nat, you know, you have an audience that's fifty percent United States, fifty percent the rest of the world. Um, on the subject of micromobility, what what, what are your, what's your closing thought? I think that there's. I, I'm really excited about be, about. The, the research we've done and, and, and being involved in, in the sector at all, uh, just because it's has the potential to be so transformative and to make our lives so much easier and, and, and better and, and save time and, and um, make everything, make our, make cities more sustainable. So um, I personally feel like I have a, a good bit invested in, in the future of the, of the segment. Um, and I think that everyone, you, everyone else should, even if you don't use scooters, you all have skin in the game. Um, the, the benefits of scooters can affect you too. So um, think about that and um, whether or not you're interested in riding, um, you know, we're, we're, all, we're all in the same boat. We, we live in, in cities that have limited amounts of space and, and resources. So, Cool. Mike? I think this sector is transformative as much that it is transforming. And it has an enormous opportunity to stand on the shoulders of other clean economy sectors to profit from a distillation of other sectors' mistakes so they make better mistakes. They're going to make mistakes. Every human endeavor does so. The question is not whether you're going to make mistakes, but are you going to make smart, effective, and learning rich mistakes? And that is the opportunity that yawns open before the micromobility sector. And we are 
about as enthusiastic a pair of cheerleaders as you're going to get for this sector. We're customers. We think that it's transformative and we think it's also crucial for getting our pollution problem under control. So I think that this is a very exciting time for micromobility and the opportunity that leans out in front of it. Excellent. Well, um, this is Mike Bernard, uh, your host for Clean Tech Talks. I've been speaking to Mike Casey and Nat Schub of Tigercom um, about micromobility and an amazing study they did to find out, to figure out how those micromobility share companies are dealing with regulatory stuff. As Mike says, and as Nat says, it's transformative. It's making our cities a better place, and we've got to fight for it. Thank you so much to both of you. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.